I love that verse at the end of Psalm 138. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. What a blessing it is for us to know that the Lord is the one in charge and he is the one that is said that he has a purpose and he will fulfill said purpose, that we can trust in him to accomplish the work that he has set about. So again, I want to offer my good morning to everyone who's here and online. I hope that your Easter weekend last weekend was full of worship and full of celebration. As we return this morning to our walk in the Hall of Fame of Faith found in Hebrews, it is good that we had a reminder last week of what is really the core subject of the book of Hebrews, and that is the supremacy of Christ. I wouldn't want us to lose view of the main tree for the forest all around us. But in this Hall of Fame of Faith, this list of men and women exists for two primary reasons. The first and most obvious is to help us to understand and to define faith. We talk about it a lot within church circles, but many of us have only a very loose grasp as to what it means. What does it mean that faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen? Or that by it the people of old received their commendation? But the second reason this list exists, and possibly the more important of the two, as I read last Sunday from chapter 12, this great cloud of witnesses, as chapter 12 calls it, exists to drive us to look to Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. These two goals, the goal of defining faith and of being turned to look towards Jesus, must be at the forefront of our mind as we read through this chapter and as we look at each of these men and women. How does this person or people deepen our understanding of faith? And how does this person drive us to look to our Savior? This morning we will get to ask those questions of Enoch. But before we do, I ask that you would come with me to our Lord in prayer. Our God and our Heavenly Father, we ask that you would give us wisdom and discernment as we read your word. That as we hear of Enoch, as we dive into your word, we ask that you would give us the eyes to see and the ears to hear and the heart that is prepared for what you have to say by your word. God, we thank you that you have left us with your word here that speaks to us and guides and directs us in our faith. We pray that we would give it the respect it deserves and that we would be pointed ever towards you, that we would worship you for your goodness and your glory. God, you have gathered us for a purpose. Accomplish that purpose in our midst today. 
pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I ask that you would turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11, verses 5 and 6. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. This is God's word. I hope that as we've been studying, you'll recognize that in the opening sequence, and maybe some of you have looked ahead in our our list of these men and women, and there's a pattern of by faith, so-and-so, and and then comes an account of what this person did, their, their actions. It would be easy for us with the definition of faith being the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen, to assume that faith is predominantly a heart, mind, and soul thing and not so much an action and body thing. But being so close to the book of James, we cannot help but be reminded that faith without action is no true faith at all. James enters the faith discussion in his chapter 2 saying, What good is it, my brothers, if someone has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. These men and women that we are discussing in chapter 11 of Hebrews have done just that. They have shown their faith by their works. To be sure, the assurance and conviction of faith is a gift from God, and it is a heart, mind, and soul thing. But if it is not attended by action, then that faith isn't faith. And our passage this morning kind of throws the the pattern off a little bit. It scrambles the formula in that the rest of this list, it is by faith so-and-so did this, and because of this, this was the result. But today's individual Enoch, it goes, by faith Enoch had this result, and then this is what he did. And then it explains what he did a little bit. And I think that's significant. The writer of Hebrews is an expert at his craft, and he wouldn't completely switch up the pattern of his whole list if there wasn't a good reason for it. Outside of just the standard scriptural genealogies. Um, This particular Enoch, as Cain did also have a son named Enoch, uh, but our particular Enoch is only mentioned in three places. Our passage today in Hebrews 11, his origin story in Genesis 5, and then in the New Testament letter of Jude. We'll get into a brief summary of a few details from Jude's account of Enoch, but in both Hebrews and Genesis, there's conspicuously nothing specific said of what Enoch actually did, besides that he pleased God or that he walked with God. 
The Genesis account of Enoch goes like this from Genesis 5, verses 21 to 24. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. That's it. That is the detail we get in Scripture about Enoch. From creation until the penning of the book of Hebrews, that is the scriptural account of this man who walked with God in such a way that God simply took him from this earth. No mention of what Enoch did besides that he walked with God. And this phrase, walked with God, in the Genesis list that Enoch's a part of, it replaces, and he died. That's how the rest of the entries in the Genesis 5 list end, and he died. But Enoch, he walked with God. And this, this phrase, also walked with God, was used one other place, and it's of Noah in chapter 6 of Genesis. And Noah, too, in a way, escaped death. Not in the same way, but it's an interesting parallel that I'll have to save for our next message on Noah. But like I said, I think it's significant that we don't get a huge long backstory of Enoch's actions. The specifics of what he did aren't as important to our understanding of the scriptural value of his story as the result of what he did. I mean, for those who are curious, we do get a tiny glimpse of Enoch's life in the letter of Jude. Jude is speaking against false teachers and reminding the people of the judgment that these false teachers would incur on themselves. And Jude says that it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Apparently, at some point, Enoch acted as a prophet against false teachers. We don't know if this was a regular thing, if he was an ongoing prophet, or if it was a one-off prophecy given to him by God. We don't know who he was prophesying to. We literally don't know anything else about Enoch from the pages of Scripture. To be honest, this prophecy isn't even recorded in the Old Testament. Without the letter of Jude, we wouldn't know it happened from Scripture. That leads me to believe that the content of what he prophesied, even that he prophesied, is less important than the results of Enoch's walk that it had on his life. From the Genesis account, the only thing that these Hebrew believers would have directly known to be true from the words of Scripture would be that Enoch had an incredibly short lifespan of only 365 years. In our modern context, that seems insane, but if you look at his father, who died at 962 years old, and his son, who is the 
longest-lived man in history and died at 969. Enoch was a young guy when he was not. He was the son of Jared. He walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. It's easy for us to start looking at these pieces from Hebrews and Jude and go, well, we know more about Enoch, but you've got to remember this is being written to Hebrew believers in the New Testament age that did not yet have our New Testament. They had the Old Testament, and that meant they had Genesis 5. And that was the sum total of their scriptural knowledge of Enoch. One of the rewards of taking extended periods of time and studying the passages of Scripture as we're doing in Hebrews 11, as we do most weeks, is that it should help us as believers to understand how to rightly interpret Scripture. If we want to claim to be people of faith, then we need to have the Word. We here at Elk Point Baptist Church believe that this Word, the 66 books of Scripture, to be the final authority in all matters of faith and practice and the true basis of Christian union. But simply owning a Bible isn't enough. You ask most people and they can find a dusty old Bible from a family member on their shelf. Just saying... Yeah, I've read the Bible. When your reading of the Bible was a quick skim to be able to say you've read it, it's not enough. We must understand it. We must understand how to interpret it. Be familiar enough with its use that it becomes useful in our hearts and our lives. And when we take time to study Scripture, we start to see things. We study and we notice in Genesis 5 that piece of, and he died, and he died, and he died, and then all of a sudden, and he was not. Enoch just doesn't die like the rest. Or we look in Hebrews 11 where our author switches up his pattern of how he's writing the story, and that should stand out to us as kind of warning flags of, hey, pay attention, there's something going on here. Anyways, it's easy for me to get on a soapbox about wanting us each here to be faithful expositors of God's Word. I love it when I hear of members of our congregation not just reading Scripture but studying Scripture because the reality is is I have you here for a couple hours on a Sunday and half hour or so where I exposit God's Word. And that leaves an entire week where it is your responsibility to be feeding upon God's Word, and if we're wanting to be feeding upon God's Word, we need to know how to handle it and how to consume it. But anyways, I will step off that soapbox and back into Enoch's account. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. This passage this morning zooms us in on the fact that there was this particular importance attached to Enoch walking with God. The only other account of such an exit from this life comes from 
the life of Elijah and 2 Kings. These two men only in history have been, taking, been taken out of this world without seeing death. And it is not by accident that these men were strong men of faith. Remembering our, our questions of how does this point us towards Christ? Enoch himself escapes death by faith. And this, for me anyways, brings to mind a, a truth about my faith, that my faith is by nature a faith of already and not yet. In one sense, we as believers who have put our faith in Jesus Christ, we do escape death. John 5, 24, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Remember from our previous messages that believe is just the verb form of what we translate as faith. So to believe is to put faith into action. So according to our Savior, if you have faith in him, then you have, in one sense, already passed from death to life. And obviously this fits in the already and not yet character of our faith because we do still see and experience the obstacle of death. We still grieve the loss of loved ones on this earth. But if you look at 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of a trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet with the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. I don't know about you, but to me this sounds conspicuously similar to the experience of Enoch and Elijah, to be caught up in the air with Christ. I'm not going to get into the end time specifics of how and when of this catching up and what happens exactly from there. But we do know at the coming of our Lord, we are promised that he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Death is an enemy that has been conquered in Christ. We, by faith in Christ, have moved from death to life. But still, though death is conquered, in its final gasping breaths, it is causing as much havoc in our hearts and our lives as it may. But one day, by faith, we will see the moment where death is swallowed up in victory. And we will say with all the saints, not just in hope but also in sight, 
O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Enoch received a foretaste of this. He walked with God. In Hebrews, it says that before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. I would say Enoch pleased God by walking with him. And that walking with him was the walk of faith. Because without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. As I said, we live in this already and not yet era where the work of Christ is completed. He has accomplished what he came to accomplish within the cross, the resurrection, and the glorification of Christ. All of that which we celebrated last week. Jesus finally accomplished his work. It is finished is what he cried on the cross. Our Savior, after making purification for sin, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high and is reigning there today. But in the meantime, we here on earth await the reality of this and the obviousness of this eagerly. 2 Peter 3 says that according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. We wait because the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God is at work. He is calling his people, all that he has chosen from before the beginning of the world to himself. And so we wait with this expectant, convicted, assured hope, eager to see the day of the Lord. But in the meantime, living by faith. And this brings up the question of what we today, what our audience in Hebrews 11 could glean in terms of what faith was. What do we learn about faith from Enoch, the seventh from Adam? It is that by faith we please God. And that without faith, it is impossible to please him. Remember all that we discussed in Hebrews chapter 10. The departure of these Hebrew Christians from the old covenant, the law, the priesthood, the sacrificial system. These systems, the old covenant systems, led the Pharisees and the religious elite. They became so wrapped up in trying to please God by the works that they were doing, relying on their own strength, and honestly even reveling in their own works-based righteousness. It led them to miss the very moment in history where God himself stood before them. And not only that, to kill God who stood before them, the person of Christ. It is of paramount importance that we here this morning do not miss Christ. We can intellectually assent to Christ's existence. The pages of history, both religious and otherwise, will attest to Christ's existence. He did exist. We might even acknowledge that the biblical account of him is true, resurrection and all. But if we do not have the kind of faith that drives us to action, that drives us to worship him, the kind of faith by which Enoch was commended as having pleased God, then we are most to be pitied because we 
knew Christ, and yet we did not know Christ. It is this kind of faith that Paul talks about in Romans 12 when he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I do not doubt for a second that if we were able to travel back in time to be a fly on the wall of Enoch's tent, that we would see him presenting himself to God daily, that God would use him as he saw fit. The criteria that our passage gives for our faith this morning came at the end of verse 6. Whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seeks him. It gives two great answers to the questions of what we can learn from Enoch's faith and how it turns our eyes towards Jesus. Enoch drew near to God. He walked with God. I think most of us from our childhood can think of a favorite fictional character from a book we read as a child. You'll know that that character becomes so lifelike in your eyes that this character seems to almost jump off the page. You relish the moments where you're reading your book and then it turns back to the account of what's going on with your favorite character in the narrative. And there likely came a point where you wished as a child that that character could indeed come off the pages of the book. You wish that you could break the bonds of what the author wrote and actually meet this character. Why? Because you knew that when the book or the series came to a close, that there was nothing else that you could learn or speak to of Peter or Lucy or Aslan or Frodo or Sam or whoever it might have been from your favorite childhood book. The moment where you felt like you walked alongside this character in their grand adventure was over because the book was over. And ultimately because they were not real. And unfortunately, when some of us read Scripture, we read Scripture this way. We get caught up in the stories, the narrative. Man, wouldn't it have been cool to be there when the Red Sea parted and we get caught up in this. But the history and the characters, but that's as far as we go in our minds. Whether we like to admit it or not, in our heart of hearts, they're just that. They're characters. Their stories are confined to the pages that were written. But praise God, if we read our scriptures as we are meant to, the story of our God is ongoing because he is alive. Even the pages of this book don't act as a container to limit the story of God. Why? Because the accounts of Scripture, the Word of God, is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. 
If we would draw near to God, we must truly believe that he exists. Not in the way that we dreamt of our favorite characters existing in real life, but truly and actually exists. Because if we want to have a relationship with our Savior, we cannot just view him as a character from the pages of a book. We must recognize that our Savior is alive today. He is ruling at the right hand of the throne of God today. He is acting as high priest and king of our own selves today. He's not just a character. He is not someone we just wish we could have met when he was alive. Which, yes, it would have been great to have gotten to meet Jesus when he walked the earth. But he is alive today. He is active today. We must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. If we believe that God exists, we've already established this from James too, that belief is not enough. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. When we believe, we must believe in him and believe what the scriptures teach about him that he is good and that he rewards those who seek him. Our Savior is Jesus Christ, the founder and perfecter of our faith. He, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus knew that he was to return to his Father. He knew the truth about God that he rewards those who seek him. And this is something that Enoch also knew. Enoch walked with God, and he did so in a world that was becoming increasingly wicked, so much so that the generation of his son Methuselah would be the last fully lived generation before the Lord would send the great flood to wipe all of humanity, save a few, from the world. This was the world that Enoch lived in. Even in the face of such growing wickedness and godlessness, Enoch trusted that God existed, that he was. And he placed his unswerving faith in him, and he believed that the reward to be found in God was far greater than anything that the world could offer. That, brothers and sisters, is one of the biggest stumbling blocks for all of humanity. We have believed the lie that the reward to be received from the world is much greater than the reward to be received from God. Even Adam at the very beginning traded the promise of God and the reward in the garden for the promise of an earthly reward from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, I'm not here to promise you that if you walk with God, if by faith you please Him, if you draw near to Him by believing that He exists and believe that He rewards those who seek Him, I'm not here to promise that you will be taken up and you will not see death. Our only hope of not seeing death is that our Lord Jesus would return before our death and make an end of death entirely. 
But I do promise that in this already and not yet era in which we live, that the death you and your loved ones will see if you trust in Christ, if they trust in Christ, will only be temporary. One last hurdle before death is swallowed up in the eternal victory that comes in knowing Christ. The reward that God has promised is far greater, and it awaits all those who would wholeheartedly seek him. Enoch pursued God in a world that was opposed to God. Does that remind you of a world that you currently live in? We live in a world that is opposed to God, that is anti-everything about God. And we are to live lives of faith, conviction and assurance in God that drive us to walk with God, to trust that his rewards are greater than any rewards this earth could offer, to trust that he does exist, and to act and live in such a way that broadcasts that. I would pray that we as the people of Elk Point Baptist Church, that anyone joining with us online would be able to walk out of their the front doors of this church or out of your doors throughout the week, and that you would walk in such a way that someone could look at your life and say, he is walking with God. She is living a life that reflects a belief and a convicted faith in something far greater. And that we would trust that God's promise God's reward is far greater and that it awaits all of us who wholeheartedly seek him. As the worship team comes to bring a closing song, I invite each one of you to, in your own hearts, examine yourselves. Do you truly believe that God exists? Do you actually believe that his reward is awaiting you. If you do, praise him with joy that you have such a Lord and such a hope. And if you do not, I pray that the Holy Spirit would reveal to your hearts in such a way that it would turn your whole world upside down, that it would completely reverse your priorities, and that you would worship him. Let's pray. Our God and our Heavenly Father, we can only imagine what it was that Enoch saw when all of the sudden he was not. We can only imagine the relief to be taken out of a world that rejects you as one who follows you wholeheartedly, only to be vindicated in that belief and to receive the, the rest that your people are promised. But Lord, if we have trust in you, that is our hope. If we have trust in you, that is what we look forward to, that one day we will be taken from this world, either by your hand or 
by death the last obstacle and that we would see you and know you and that our faith would become sight and that we would rejoice in you. God, we do pray that your Son would come again soon, that we might see you in that amazing and miraculous way as you return to make an end of all things evil. And Lord, we pray that in the meantime we would live as ones who are completely enthralled in you, who have made it their goal and their aim to follow you in everything they say and do. that we would cast aside the things that the world offers us as alternatives to you, as cheap copies and substitutes for what you have given us. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the example given us by Enoch. We thank you for your church. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.